Welcome to The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. This is episode number two of The Next Track. We're going to be talking about streaming versus ownership in just a couple of minutes, but I think we have to mention uh, a significant update to iTunes was recently released, and it kind of looks like Apple's had some second thoughts on the UI. Uh, They've made some changes under the hood, removed some things. What's your overall take? You're the iTunes guy. Well, when iTunes 12 came out, I was pretty negative about the whole the, the whole multiple sets of buttons for navigation thing. I found it confusing, and, and a lot of the feedback I got from users was that they really didn't know what they were supposed to be doing to move around in iTunes. Essentially, what Apple did here is they removed a layer of cruft they removed those little navigation buttons that were at the top of the sidebar. They simplified the navigation buttons in the middle of the sidebar. So they removed where, actually, they just removed one button. It said playlists. And what that button did is it would show your music in playlists view, which would display a sidebar at the left. Now in the new iTunes 12.4, the sidebar is always visible. Um, you can hide it, but it's best to leave it visible because it's the only simple way to choose the different media views. So, for instance, if you want to look at your music by artist, by album, by song, etc., um, the easiest way to do it is from the sidebar. So the sidebar is, once again, an, an integral element of iTunes, and the sidebar goes back to iTunes 1, doesn't it? Yeah. I think a lot of people prefer to keep that left sidebar visible. It's like a, it's like an anchor when you're moving around inside the browser window or making play, building playlists or you know, working with tracks in, in the browser window. I also like the way you can choose to hide the view options that you're not using. Like, I just use the songs view. I've just hidden everything else. I keep it very minimal anyway. I just use the sidebar and the column browser and the songs view. Although I like playlist view, uh, but I don't like that it's the default first view of a new playlist. It'd be nice if you could set the default view, but I like the playlist view, so I, I can live with it. So you're talking about the playlist view that was introduced in iTunes 12. Right. It's nice. It's a nice uncluttered, presentational sort of view, but I prefer songs view when I'm working with tracks so I can see more of the tags. In fact, I keep all the columns toggled on in my playlists. Yeah, so that that's something you need to change manually. Um, on a Mac, you press Command-J, you get the View Options window, which was not a window previously in iTunes 12. It was a pop-up menu at the top right of iTunes. And so that's actually something that was quite confusing. You had one set of buttons at the left of the iTunes window to choose your media. You had another set of buttons in the middle to choose what you're looking at amongst your media. And this would either be My Music, Playlists, or the Apple Music um, selections like For You and New or the iTunes Store. Then at the right side, you had another menu which lets you change view options. So basically, Apple did an about-face on a lot of the changes that they put into iTunes 12, um, I would say fortunately, because from what I'm hearing, a lot of people are a bit relieved that, you know, we're used to seeing in subsequent iTunes releases that more and more features get added and it gets more and more confusing. Whereas this time it has simplified at least the overall interface. Not that there aren't still lots of features, but they're not as in your face as they were before. I am a relieved and pleased iTunes user. Um, Whenever there's a new version of iTunes, the developer in me panics because 
significant changes in iTunes might mean that I, I need to change and update a lot of my scripts and apps and distribute them, and it's chaotic for a little while. Uh, and of course, I also have an irrational fear that Apple is going to, for some reason, pull Apple Script support from iTunes. Because if they get rid of Apple Script, you need to find a new job, basically. Well, a new hobby anyway. <laughs> so here I am. Imagine my surprise. I open up iTunes 12.4 and, and see that there's a whole bunch of new Apple Script stuff. Uh, so it was quite surprising um, and a lot of it long in coming. And it suggests to me that, that Apple uh, is committed to Apple Script support in iTunes for a little while. So there's some relief there. Is this the first time that they've added so many new Apple Script properties and whatever else you call them? First time in a long time. Um, yeah, considering, you know, we've been getting little changes by dribs and drabs over the years. Um, this is the first time in a long time that a lot of new stuff has been added at once. And it also seems they've been working on the Apple Script Dictionary. Uh, that's literally uh, the dictionary inside of iTunes that tells you what you can uh, automate and access with Apple Script programs. The Apple Script Dictionary has been tidied up. Um, they've added more properties to, to help uh, work with tracks in the cloud and streaming tracks. But overall, I think it suggests that the ability to manage our, our audio files, that is the stuff we've purchased or downloaded or ripped, that's not going anywhere in iTunes, uh, even as we enter the streaming era. I, I must say that as I'm updating my um, Take Control of iTunes 12, the FAQ book, um, I've noticed an awful lot of small changes. I'll put a link in the show notes to an article on my website entitled Some Minor Changes in iTunes 12.4, where I've got about 20 small changes um, that I've listed. And, and if anyone comes up with changes that they've spotted, please let me know in the comments and I'll add more uh, I'll, I'll add more to the list. Okay, so a step in the right direction. Good effort in simplifying a complex, flexible interface. No major new complaints or complications. So considering how people usually react to iTunes updates, I'd say this was a not great, but not bad, a good update. So this week, we want to talk about the difference between streaming music and owning music or more appropriately, renting music and owning music, because that's what it comes down to. Your, your $10 a month tithe that you pay to the music industry is, well, if you're a music fan, it's permanent. And if you want to know how, how much you're going to be paying over your lifetime, you could multiply 10 times 12 by the number of years you expect to live. Um, now, maybe you'll live to be 100 if you're young enough. So let's say you're 18 and you're going to live to be 100. That's 82 times 12. And a little bit quick math, live radio, that's nearly $1,000. Of course, the price is going to increase over time, but it comes down to that. It's, do you want to own music or do you want to just rent it? Well, you know, I know there are, I know there are some that say they, they consider a streaming plan as renting music, but I think of it more as, as paying for listening access. You're, you're paying to listen to every album ever recorded, whenever you want, wherever you want. I mean, the idea of renting your music implies that, in effect, when you stop paying it, it will disappear. But that only matters if you've come to depend on it as your, as your only source of music. I think we're, we're in an early transitional phase, and we're trying to bridge file management with streaming, and the implementation so far has been kind of bumpy. Let's first get a couple of things out of the way. So you're paying for your streaming subscription, and if you want to listen to the music on your mobile device, you also need to be paying for your data. Now, a number of carriers are offering 
free data when it's a particular streaming service. Over here, there's a company called Deezer. It was originally a French company. I believe it was bought out by EE, which is the biggest phone company in the UK. EE was recently bought out by BT, former British Telecom, so it gets complicated. But EE offers you unlimited data for Deezer streaming if you have a Deezer subscription. And with certain EE plans, you even get the subscription for free. Yeah, I think T-Mobile does that in the US. I think they have a lot of services. T-Mobile started doing that as well. Um, I, I think that's something that all the mobile carriers are going to have to do in order for streaming to take off because the average user with an average contract, they may end up paying more for the data than they would for the music subscription. The second thing is you said every album ever recorded, and it's far from that. Uh, the, the last numbers that Apple gave were 43 million tracks on the iTunes store and 30 million tracks on Apple Music. So that's about three quarters of what's on the iTunes store is available to stream. In other words, there are 13 million tracks that aren't available to stream. And this doesn't even count the music that's not available digitally. So there's a lot of music that you can only get, um, you know, that's never been digitized. But, but that's only if you're interested in all of that. If you're only interested in the music, for instance, you'd hear normally on the radio. You know, if you have conventional tastes for pop music you're pretty much set you'll every record that you ever will want to hear will be available to you well it it'll be available but for how long so um i'm sure i'll mention it several times but i have two itunes libraries my imac has my large library it's about seventy thousand tracks i won't turn on icloud music library because it was disastrous when i did so a year ago my MacBook has an Apple Music and iCloud Music library. Out of 16,000 tracks in my Apple Music library, about 900 are no longer available. They were available at some point when I added them to the library, and now they are no longer available. Some of these are individual tracks that are just not streamable. Some of them are entire albums that aren't streamable. So this isn't a permanent decision by a record label or an artist. They can remove any of the music from streaming at any time they want. And wh what you said is correct. If you're only interested in pop music, let let's take the 80-20 rule. 80% 80 of people are only interested in listening to the radio, and it's fine. But for the others, you may find that certain record labels or certain artists that you follow don't stream their music. Um it's less a problem in pop, but I'll cite two labels um, that don't allow their music to be streamed. The jazz and classical label ECM, which has an extraordinary catalog uh, of a unique style of jazz. And the classical label Hyperion, which is a British independent label. I believe they got about 4,000 releases. They don't stream their music. There are other smaller labels that don't as well. Why don't they stream? Because they think that they're not making enough money from it. And that is an issue in a lot of stream. I mean, for <clears throat> unless you're a mega artist, you're really not going to make a lot of money from streaming. That's a fact. I mean, if you're Taylor Swift, you're going to make money. Sure. If you're Kanye West, you'll make money. But if you're an, an indie band from a re and have regional popularity, uh, you've really got to you know work to to get those streams, and it's you're never going to amount to what you can make selling, you know, physical copies of your music at shows and things like that. That's that's a whole evolution that's happening now as as streaming uh, you know, makes money for the for the super pop acts. It's it's these under the radar acts that that aren't getting the streaming benefits. So I I guess in a way, you know, if you're if you're just content to lock into a, a pop music sound, if you like the radio station sound, if you like, you know, radio station music, 
streaming is probably fine. I, even then, I mean, if, you'd, if it's Pandora or if it's something like Spotify or something like Apple Music. Um, so you're right. There are, there, are, there are those of us in the fringe area that are, are not going to be able to stream stuff like that unless we actually purchase it and, and make it available on our own devices by our own means. Right. So if you've got um, a particular artist, band, or label and you've got music, if you do want to use one of these services that does mix up your library, and frankly, with Apple Music, I really don't recommend people do it if they care about their music. Um, you can. It'll upload your music or it'll match it in the for what is on the iTunes store even if it's not available for, to stream on Apple Music your music can be matched if it's on the iTunes store so all of your ECM and Hyperion records would be matched and you could stream them but you couldn't choose additional ones from Apple Music the the ECM story is actually interesting cuz they did stream on Spotify for a while and then they pulled everything. I believe they have one compilation album that's available on Apple Music and Spotify and other services. Um, they realized that they weren't making enough money and that given how much they stood to lose, it just wasn't worthwhile for them. I, I spoke with a number of um, small label heads last year about this, and some of the very small ones were saying, well, we just can't afford to do it because if people stop buying our music... Um, you know, a, a label that's selling a thousand copies of a CD and breaking even, if they lose half of those, they won't break even and they'll go out of business. Right. The payments made for streaming rights are, are just so much lower than uh, the royalties made from uh, physical sales. I, I, don't, I don't even know how it's going to equalize out. Well, the, the, the theory a while ago was that if we reach a critical mass of people streaming music, then there will be enough money for these companies. So let's say uh, um, a label that gets a million streams a month, they get a pittance. If they get a billion streams a month, it might be enough money to compensate for the loss in CD sales. The question is, will it really scale like that? Is it just going to be Taylor Swift who gets the large numbers of streams? Because again, we're talking about the independent labels, the small artists and all that who are suffering. Will there, if twice as many people stream music, will they get twice as many streams? It's not really obvious. Plus some, one of them has just started, I think it's YouTube. They've just started using a standardized method of reporting plays so that compensation can be determined more accurately. And don't they also have something, I believe it's called a track equivalent album? And they use that to, they, it's a certain number of streams that is the equivalent of an album sale. So they use that to certify an album gold or platinum. They, they count it with album sales for certification purposes. The RIAA does that, but it's not the same. It's artificial. And, and it's only because the record labels, seeing that music wasn't selling, they still wanted to get their gold or platinum certifications. Right. Um, talk about that uh, survey. So there was a recent survey done here in the UK. Um, it was done by a company that wants to launch a new streaming service with a hardware device. And they surveyed 2,000 people and they were trying to find um, how many people streamed and how people felt about it. So millennials, which they describe as people born between 1982 and 2004, 16% of them stream music. Now, I'm in the article that I linked to in the show notes, this isn't broken down because does streaming music count YouTube where people don't have a subscription? Um, does it count free ad-based Spotify streaming? I don't know. Generation X, so these are people born 61 to 81, only 6% of people stream music and baby boomers. That's you and me, bro. 3% of people. Now, I found this really interesting because 
the survey said that 42% of respondents still see CDs and radios as easier than music streaming, while only 18% think streaming is easier. Now, I, I quickly reacted to this. There's a graph in here that shows um, as people age, they stream less and they find streaming less easy. They find radio easier than streaming. I think the thing here is the older you are, the larger the music collection you have. We grew up in a time when there was no choice. Well, there was radio, but there was no other way to have music other than buying your own music or remember home taping is killing music, making cassette tapes. Well, and that was true right up to the iPod. If you wanted to listen to music portably, you had to buy the content. So, I mean, even right up to the iPod age. Yeah, and I don't think if you're like so you and I were a bit we're, we're a bit on the fence, aren't we? We have large music libraries, but we're music curious. So we are going to look for new music, but I think most people the older they get, the less music they're interested in. And this also comes through in a study that Spotify did that shows that music taste matures by age 35. And it seems to be pretty obvious that once you have kids, everything changes. So at 35, you're done. You're just now jumping in the car, turning on the radio, crossing your fingers and hoping for the best. Or you may buy one or two CDs a year, but any musical interest you had, you probably don't have a lot of time to go out and see concerts. Um, you don't buy CDs. You don't stay up late watching uh, bands on the late night TV shows. The thrill is gone. The thrill is gone. But then as people get a little older, as their kids grow up, they do start to get interested in music again. And some of them discover music through their kids. I, I know my son has turned me on to a lot of interesting music. And, and how does he discover music so that you don't have to? He buys downloads and he streams. Um, in particular, there's a record label that he really likes called Other People. And I think he pays $50 a year for all their releases. And they release what they call issues, which could be a single, an EP, or an album. And he downloads everything. In addition to that, he has an Apple Music subscription. Early on, he was very grouchy. Oh, I'm not going to pay 10 euros a month for music. And about a month later, he said, oh, wow. And he really likes it. So he, he gets his music on Apple Music, and this is interesting. He'll look for playlists that contain artists he knows and then find the other artists in the playlists. Yeah, that's what I do. Yeah. So he's finding it quite good, and, and his tastes are interesting, and he's constantly turning me on to new music that I would never, ever have discovered. And I'd say I like about 20% of what he suggests to me. Um, he knows not to suggest everything to me because he knows my tastes. Yeah, you're an old guy. I'm an old guy, but I'm interested enough that I have found a lot of music I like. So again, you and I were not typical as far as the Spotify's article is concerned either. No, I never seem very well represented in surveys and discussions like that. We're different, though. Our, we have jobs that, is, are, that are music-related, um, and, and we continue to stay music-curious. I mean, I, I, I'm looking for new kinds of music to listen to, not necessarily newly released music. That's not really a problem. Discovery is a real problem on a lot of these streaming services where you can pick things a la carte. I mean, when you have hundreds of thousands of choices, how do you choose? Um, one of the things I really like about Apple Music, though, one of the ways they get around it is by using the For You playlists. Curated playlists give you an idea of what's familiar and may introduce you to some new things, and that's very frequently how I'll do it. It, it may be new music to me, uh, and if I you know, think that I'm going to want to listen to it again later, I'll buy it. Yeah, as, as you say, you and I are different. We do buy music, and, and in particular, um, people with specific musical tastes. Uh, I've already mentioned that I'm a deadhead, a fan of The Grateful Dead, so I buy 
all the Grateful Dead's official releases, um, there are lots of people who are interested in jam bands like Fish and other bands like that, and they'll buy the live concerts that, that you can download. Even Bruce Springsteen is selling his concerts live now, uh, I think pretty much every concert. Um, now, you may go to a Bruce Springsteen concert and just buy that one. Really not a lot of interest in buying every Bruce Springsteen concert from a tour. They're pretty much all the same. Um, though it, it's a good bargain. I think he sells the MP3 version for 10 or $12, and you know his concerts are three, three and a half hours long. Um, but it, this is really the 1% of music listeners, the people who care enough. And then there are also people who, who are interested in particular indie bands. And even if they stream a lot, they might buy the music from these bands as a way of supporting artists they appreciate. DJs also, DJs will create mixes and make them available for download and other interesting alternative music source. Um, I've been to shows, you know, club shows and seen bands, local regional bands, and I've bought their CD at the show. The thing about Springsteen shows and big shows like that, I mean, for what you pay to get into concerts these days, you, you'd almost expect to leave the, sh the auditorium with a, a copy of the show on a thumb drive and a <laughs> greetings from New Jersey keychain. You, I mean, you should get the concert for free when you get the tickets. They should give you a, a, a code or something to download it for free. And food and beverages. Yes. <laughs> and, parking and parking and all the rest. Ballet parking. Yeah. So you and I were talking a week or 10 days ago, and I tried out some Apple Music radio stations, and I'm doing air quotes for stations there. What you do is you seed it with a song, and Apple Music is going to just keep playing music for a couple of hours related to that song. And, and I took some tracks by John Cale, David Bowie, and a couple other you know artists from the 70s, and there was an interesting variety in the tracks it presented. So there were, when I took the John Cale, every six or eight tracks was a John Cale track. And that kind of makes sense. But some of them were fairly well-known, Phil Manzanera, Roxy Music, David Bowie. Some were less well-known, things like Noy and Cabaret Voltaire. And I'm sorry, listeners, if you aren't familiar with these bands, we have a particular... Um, you know, range of musical references here. But I was actually surprised that the Apple Music radio station was so good. And those were songs that you didn't have in your library. Exactly. Yeah, so it was it was suggest well, it was playing music for me that I didn't have that it thought that I might might like that was related to what I had selected. Now, there might also be an element of my library that uh, modifies the algorithm there. In other words, Apple Music knows what's in my library, knows what I've purchased, knows what I've played. So that might have an effect, but I'm not so sure. Um, now, Apple Music Radio now is a lot less interesting than the older iTunes radio. You had three settings for like the most popular hits and then allow some, I don't remember what the term was, experimentation or whatever. Is, um, wasn't, isn't the new... Apple Music Radio based on what Beats was doing before Apple acquired it? I'm not really sure, um, but it is different from the original iTunes radio. Um, you could tune an iTunes radio station. You could say, don't play this song or artist, play this more. And then you could even share the station with other people. And you can't really do that anymore. You can share the stations, but it's not as good. Um, so I, I found that an interesting way to not only put on music for an hour or two while I'm working and I don't want to choose, but I don't want an album, so I want some variety, and a way to say, well, hey, here's some music you don't know that you might like. Yeah, if you've, uh, if you've never used Pandora, it kind of works like that. And in the interest of full disclosure, I should mention that I occasionally do voice work for Pandora. Uh, with Pandora, you create a new station 
based on a seed song or artist, and then the music genome takes over and plays music similar to the seed. I've used both Pandora and iTunes Radio. I like them both. I guess I kind of like Pandora a little bit more, if only because I've been using it for several years. But I suppose, in the grand scheme of things, uh, iTunes Radio is supposed to be the Pandora killer uh, of Apple's kit. Yeah, so I don't have Pandora because it's not available over here. Right. Um, it's only available in the U.S. and maybe Canada? Uh, I think Australia. Uh, yes, Australia for some reason. Why is it in Australia? Um, the metric system? No, I'm only kidding. That's a Pulp Fiction reference. Probably licensing. I, I believe that might be it, um, that there are licensing issues um, that make it simpler. Um, so I've never been able to use it. Um, but yeah, iTunes Radio is an interesting way to, a, as we both said, you fill up the, the, the silence, but you get some interesting stuff. So what I do is while I'm listening, if I hear a song that I like and that I haven't heard or that maybe I want to note, um, I'll add it to my iTunes library to a playlist. And I've got a, an Apple Music um uh, playlist of where I add these songs to. And then I can go back and say, okay, this song was good. I'm going to find this album, listen to the album, going to check out more from the artist and, and all that. That's a lot of work, though. It, it really is. This is research. It's not that simple. Um, I've never found For You to be very useful. It seems to focus on the fact that I have one Elton John album in my iTunes library a lot of Grateful Dead and, you know, a Jackson Brown album. So basically, it doesn't show me anything that's very interesting that's different from that. It ignores all my jazz, my ambient, um, my electronica and, and all that stuff. My theory, of course, about your library is that it just is too confounding. Yeah. And your taste is too wide and varied that Apple Music can't get a grip on it. And that's why you see bizarre playlists. Yeah, I have, for me it works fine. It's I, I'm I'm usually tickled by some of the playlists that come up. So it's yeah, I just keep getting the Jimmy Iovine in the studio playlist, and I've and, told Apple Music I don't like this suggestion enough times that it should have learned. Yeah, I think it must default to Jimmy Iovine when it doesn't know what else to do. It's like here, listen to the works of our founder. <laughs> you know, one thing we we only briefly touched upon earlier, but probably deserves its own discussion, is licensing. The way creators, artists, composers are compensated when their songs are streamed or broadcast or performed. That is a, an issue that is still being worked out. If your music is played on a streaming platform, you derive significantly less income from it than you would selling the physical product or for performance rights. So that whole ball of wax has yet to work itself out as well. Well, streaming is here. Streaming's not going away. It is a generational thing. And as people age, they're going to have gone through the period when they discover streaming and streaming is the way they listen to music. So the real question now is, do you adapt or do you keep buying music? And will the streaming services adapt and get things better? Um, maybe cost a little bit less because I still think $10 a month for a lot of people that's a bit too much just to have music on in the background. And any incurred uh, data costs. Well, in addition, so as, as we were discussing earlier, um, if the mobile carriers can get deals where your data um, doesn't count against your monthly data plan, then that would be a good thing. Of course, this doesn't really affect you when you listen at home, but I think one of the main reasons you would want streaming is to have an, a virtually unlimited music library when you're out. Right, because when you're at home, it just makes more sense to play music from your hard drives. But when you're mobile, streaming just makes more sense. All right, good talk. 
In each episode, Doug and I pick our next track, the music that we're planning to listen to next. So, Doug, what's your next track today? This is some new music that was not hard for me to discover at all. Eric Clapton has just released a new album called I Still Do. And like a lot of the albums and the projects he's been working on in the past decade, there's a lot of covers and homages to, uh, you know, the music that he likes, like country and blues and standards. Believe it or not, he does uh, I'll Be Seeing You on this album. But the reason why I'm most anxious to listen to this album is that Eric Clapton has reunited with legendary British producer Glyn Johns, who was responsible for a lot of great music from the 70s. He worked a lot with The Who, The Rolling Stones, The Faces, and he worked with Eric Clapton in 1977 on Slow Hand, and that turned out pretty good. So I'm not only looking forward to hearing great musicianship, I'm looking forward to hearing uh, how Glyn Johns handles the production on Eric Clapton's I Still Do. It's my next track. What have you got, Kirk? Well... I would be remiss if I didn't choose the new Bob Dylan album. Um, we're recording just two days before Bob's 75th birthday. And I actually got to see Bob Dylan live for the very first time last year, um, just after he had released an album called Shadows in the Night, which was 10 songs that Frank Sinatra had recorded. And it was very interesting to see Dylan on stage at the age of 74, singing these songs which we didn't really think fit with his kind of music. But I could see how much he was enjoying singing these songs. I had front row tickets. I paid full price here. Um, but it was clear that he enjoyed interpreting these songs, and his band plays them really well. So he's just released another album called Fallen Angels, and this one has 12 songs. They're not Sinatra songs, although Sinatra sang some of them, such as All or Nothing at All. It's another collection of, let's just call them crooner songs, right? Um, you may recognize some of the titles, even if you're not a fan of that music, Young at Heart, Melancholy Mood, That Old Black Magic, and, and listening to Bob Dylan sing that old black magic with a sort of a truculent voice. It's really a delight. If you're a hardcore Dylan acoustic folk fan, you might not like it. But if you've been following Dylan through the many peregrinations of his career, I think you need to listen to this album. So that's called Fallen Angels by Bob Dylan. This has been The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. You can find show notes and links to some of the things we talked about in this and other episodes at thenexttrack.com. There's also a contact form there you can use to send us comments. If you like the show, we hope you'll subscribe in iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And please think about giving us a review or rating. We'd appreciate that. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time. <laughs>